Good morning. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Once again, Matthew chapter 5. You're probably saying, boy, we've been in this text a while. Well, there's a lot to be said in this text, and uh, we're working our way out of it. We're looking at the uh, seventh um, beatitude here uh, today. In Matthew chapter 5, and just want to read for us once again the text that's before us, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up to a mountain, and when he was seated, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then we come to our text today, verses 10 and 11. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Remember, it says there falsely. <laughs> okay, it's important that we understand that. Uh, those things aren't true that they're saying about you. Hopefully they're not. Um, you know, the first six of the Beatitudes, the result of, of living out those Beatitudes that are listed there is really stated in verse 9. And we looked at this last week. If you are able to do the first six by God's help, which we're called to as Christians, it's an attitude that resides within us when God transforms our hearts. According to that, then he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. See, those who live according to the principles that we see here in Matthew 5, in these what we call the Beatitudes, will be peacemakers. And they will be, no question here, identified as sons of God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's pretty clear. And then it goes on, and basically it gives a second and kind of a, a contrasting result in verses 10 through 12. The last one here, he says, Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says once again, Blessed are you, for when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of uh, evil against you falsely for my name's sake. And then he closes off in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. There's some irony here in these Beatitudes, and we've seen it every week as we've looked at each one of these. Uh, he who lives out the Beatitudes, it says, will be what? A peacemaker. And yet, as a result of being a peacemaker, what happens? You receive persecution. Doesn't make sense in our logical mind. And we talked about a peacemaker last week, and we, we stated the fact that a peacemaker is not a peacekeeper. A peacemaker is someone who goes out into this lost and dying world and is willing to take the chance to try to expose people to the truth of God. And when you do that, people don't like that. But the ultimate goal is not just to make peace with everybody. Let's just love and let's be loved and God's got love. And that's not the purpose here. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying the only way you can be a Christian and be a peacemaker is if you expose people to the truth of God and then they're convicted of their sin and they start off with beatitude number one and they're poor in spirit and then they mourn over their sin and they, they're, they're meek and they receive more meekness and then they have this continuous hunger for uh, righteousness. And then they're merciful and God extends more mercy to them and then they're pure in heart and they shall see God. That's what a peacemaker does. It exposes people to the truth of Christ, the truth of His Word. The Christian, by trying to make peace, really, what do we do? We stir up strife. Have you ever had this experience? Have you ever gone into a situation where you're thinking, okay, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to expose people to the, the gospel? Maybe you went out with some friends who weren't saved. And you say, hey, this is a great opportunity to witness to them. You start witnessing to them. What happens? I know, they just put their arms around you. Oh, we love you. This is great. Tell us more. Tell us how rotten we are, how wicked our heart is. We just can't wait to hear how wrong we are in our religion, man-made religion, whatever it may be. We want to hear, no, they don't do that. They say, hey, what's got into you? Wait a minute. That's good enough for you. But, you know, just keep it to yourself. We don't want to hear this all the time. That's good. I'm glad you found religion. You just go ahead. Go your merry way. Leave me alone. And if you continue... What happens? They begin to persecute you. See, our Lord was called the Prince of what? Peace. Yet He said in Matthew 10.34, here's what He said, I came not into the world to send peace, but what? A sword. To bring a sword. Jesus didn't come to earth just to make everybody happy, and so everybody would have peace treaties, and everybody just get along. He really came to expose people to the truth of their wicked hearts, their sin that they're facing, the ultimate penalty being hell. People don't like to be told that. When's the last time somebody told you you were a sinner? Or you told somebody they were a sinner? Usually the response isn't, you know, ah, thank you for that compliment. I'll love you all the more. You don't get that kind of response from people, especially people who don't know Christ. Believers are peacemakers only to those they help make peace with God. Other than that, the context really means nothing beyond that. Really, they're troublemakers, if you stop and think about it, to those who don't respond to the gospel. You're viewed as a troublemaker. You're viewed as some religious fanatic, narrow-minded person. And you know what? Those who really look at the Beatitudes... They look at what Christ is telling his audience to do here. And a lot they look at it and they're just blown away. Just like the audience was blown away. And they really feel inadequate in fulfilling what Christ says a Christian, and that's what it means. Blessed are those who mourn and for sin and are merciful and pure in heart. All those it describes a Christian. If you're outside of Christ, this doesn't mean anything for you this morning. You're not going to receive any blessing about this. You have to be in Christ. You have to take that first step of faith. But once you're part of God's family, once you've acknowledged your sin and you've cried out for His forgiveness, then you become a child of God. And then you become under the umbrella of the blessings of God. See, a person who lives out the Beatitudes can seem a little bit too good to be true if you stop and think about it. And we feel inadequate when we look at this list of things that God calls us to do. The Beatitudes can make you feel like you're 
looking at someone kind of in this, you know, oh, who do they think they are? Think they're just better than everybody else? Our natural reaction when we look at this, going, we look at it and we go, come on, Jesus, nobody lives on a day-to-day -day basis like this. No one could fulfill all those incredible characteristics on a consistent basis. No way. But you know what? God's not worried about that. He's not worried about whether or not we can do this. See, that's the neat thing about God. He doesn't lower his standard for anybody. His standard is holiness. His standard is purity of heart. He doesn't lower it for anybody. It doesn't matter who you are. See, in the, in the Beatitudes, Jesus really, he's presenting this ideal, you might call it a portrait of a believer, of someone who knows Christ. And he's saying, you know what? We don't lower our standard here. That's what he wants his hearers to understand. Because see, over the years, his Jewish audience, they looked at the law, and like we said a couple weeks ago, they looked at the law and said, yeah, right, who could keep this? Let's make up our own. So they came up with their own little deal. No, we'll do hand work. That's it. And then they couldn't even do that. So then they said, well, just keep one of them. I'm sure God will understand. You know, he's a God of grace. Don't worry about it. And they got caught up in all this religious stuff that they created to try to make themselves feel better before a holy God. And they thought somehow if they could fulfill all their little rules and regulations, that God would give them a bigger hug. God would love them more. It doesn't work that way. I don't know about you, but I thank God every day it doesn't work that way. I thank God I don't have to do a better dance. I don't dance, by the way, but a better dance before God to get a bigger hug from Him. Every day, I don't wake up going, oh man, what do I got to do before God for Him to love me more today? Because, you know, last week, you know, aren't you glad? I mean, have you ever been in a job where it's all performance-based? Maybe a sales job? Some of you are sales. I don't know how you do that. I tried selling something one time in my life, and I had this great idea. It was when we lived down in Indio, California, the desert there. Gives me shivers just to think about living down there. But anyway, my daughter was smart enough to go visit her dad over in Oceanside at the beach. And so I remember running back and forth once in a while to pick her up or go see her, whatever. And I remember on the way on this road up through Hemet and stuff, there's this little road you go on, and this one guy had these signs out. Beef jerky, one mile, big yellow signs. And I like beef jerky. I don't know how you feel about that. but So I pulled over one day, and it was good. It was pretty good. He had little samples, and people were stopping, just busy, you know. And I'm thinking, wow, this is there's something to this. I mean, if I like beef jerky, everybody's got to like beef jerky, right? So I started talking to the guy. I go, where do you get this stuff? He goes, well, I make it. He goes, are you interested in distributing it? Where are you from? I said, I'm from the desert down in, in India. He goes, I don't have a distributor down there. I go, well, how do you do it? You just make some signs, set up alongside the road, no problem. People just, once they taste it, they keep on coming back. I'm like, great. So I remember talking my wife in, going and buying some of this stuff, boxes of it. And uh, sat in our hot garage in India, where it's like 120 degrees. But I remember the day I went out and I thought, well, where am I going to set up my stand? Where, you know, right there on Highway 111, it goes past all these, these, uh, the date farms there. And then there's a kind of a, a, uh, kind of a tourist attraction there. And I thought, I'll set it up there. So I, I put up my signs, got my signs painted all, got them set up and everything. And I'm sitting out there. 
And, you know, I sat out there about five minutes, and then I realized I can't sit here in the sun. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, it's hot. I'm sweating. You know, people are driving by. I go, look at that idiot out there in 120-degree weather. Yeah, he thinks we're going to stop to buy a bag of beef jerky. And I tried this for a week. I tried it in different plots. I tried it in front of some of the casinos. My problem was every time somebody stopped, they'd get out. Oh, what do you sell? Beef jerky? Oh, you want some? And I was giving it all away. Never bought any. I was just giving. Well, try this one here. You, you know, and you know, I mean, I maybe sold one or two bags of this stuff. I had a lot to eat. I enjoyed it, but I didn't make any money because I I'm not a salesman. I'm hard. I'm, I'm just not one of the personality. Some of you could sell something to anybody, but I'm just not that way. And and sometimes when you're in that kind of a job that you have to perform, you understand the pressure. I mean, you have to perform every week or your family doesn't eat. You've got to be on the phone. You've got to be hustling. You've got to be doing what you're supposed to be doing out there, selling your product. And you've got to believe in your product. It's like some of these things you see on TV. I mean, I don't know how these people put their name on these things. And I don't know about you, but my garage is kind of full of some of these things. And it's sitting there collecting dust. But some of them, I mean, you know, you think, boy, I've got to have these. You know, and they do the sales pitch, and you're up at 2.30 in the morning looking at the TV going, all right, yeah, get the credit card out. Yeah, I'll buy the super-duper deal. I get three knife sets instead of just one. You know, I thought, what are you going to do with these things? It's crazy. But they know how to sell things. See, our, our faith, our Christianity isn't based on what we sell, what we do. It's based on the grace of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That you can go to bed at night not wondering if you're going to have to be saved tomorrow, if you're going to have to be saved again tomorrow and maybe the next day because you do something wrong? That Christ, when He died on the cross, He paid for all the sins? For all who would ever put their faith and trust in Him? And then He takes them and, he, and, and God hands them over to Christ. And He says, here, these are, these are yours. And Jesus says, hey, no, nobody's going to snatch them out of my hand. See, it's not a performance-based thing. A lot of people look at the Beatitudes as a performance-based thing. And it's not, you can't pick one of these and say, I'm going to be merciful today, but I'm not going to be pure of heart. You can't do it that way. They all come together. It's one lump sum. Either you're, you're what this says or you're not. Now, am I saying you have to fulfill 100% of this all the time? No, because we're sinners saved by grace. And we're still here in the sinful world, and we still deal with sin on a daily basis. We're going to fail. We're going to fall. We're going to fall flat on our face. But you know what? God still loves us when we do. His grace is still extending to us. His blood is still covering our sin when we sin. That's why the Bible says that when we do sin, that we go to Him and we confess the sin. We don't cower in the corner hiding from God afraid of what he might do. Because we understand biblically our position before God is one that's been justified by Christ, that we're righteous because of Christ. So don't look at this list as something that, oh, yeah, right, nobody's going to be able to do this. You live by the Spirit of God on a day-to-day -day basis, you're going to see more evidence of God working in your life, and you'll see more of these things kind of come up in your life more. They're already there if you're a Christian. They just need to come to the surface. And basically, what Jesus is saying here, everybody who belongs to Christ's kingdom and everybody who demonstrates these beatitudes, these attitudes that we've been talking about for the last several weeks, if you're actually demonstrating what the Word of God says here in Matthew, you're basically, it's inevitable that you're going to be persecuted. You're going to go through some kind of suffering. Something's going to happen as a result of you living out what Christ tells us to live out here. 
And as time passes, these characteristics should become increasingly stronger in your life. And as that occurs, pretty soon you're going to be speaking out about something to somebody that maybe you didn't think you had any responsibility to speak out before. But you're seeing maybe something in somebody's life as sin, and you're going, whoa, you know, that, that needs to be dealt with. And you confront them about it. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says, My brethren, count on all joy when you fall into various trials. Multicolored trials. Trials coming from every angle is the idea. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith works patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and entire, lacking nothing. 1 Peter 5.10 says, The God of all grace who has called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, that's what the Word of God says, He'll make you perfect. He'll establish you. He'll strengthen you. And then He'll settle you. That's what trials do for the Christian. That's what persecution does for the Christian. It establishes us. It makes us more mature. It strengthens us. It settles us. I don't know if you've ever poured any concrete, but one thing you do when you're pouring concrete, if you're pouring foundation, you don't just slop it in there and just let it dry, right? It'd be all bumpy. There'd be air bubbles in there and everything. You take a stick and you go through it and make sure all the air's out, and then they come by and they smooth it and they finish it really smooth, or they put a certain texture on it. And then you know you've got a, a firm, established foundation. If you just poured a lump of concrete and let it sit there, You'd have pockets and dry with cracks and all sorts of things. Well, God is in the process of taking each one of us and He's putting that finish on us. And He does that through trials. He does that through sticking a stick in our life and kind of moving it around and getting the air pockets out. All the imperfections. Now, why isn't this tolerated by the world. Why isn't somebody who lives by this list of things, someone who's humble or poor in spirit, who mourns over their sin, who is meek and thirsts for righteousness and is merciful and pure in heart and a peacemaker, why are they persecuted? Why are we not tolerated in the world in which we live? Well, if you stop and you think what the world promotes, you don't have to look very far. It doesn't promote being poor in spirit or humble. But it what? It glories in being prideful. It glories in promoting yourself, exalting yourself, lifting yourself up. It can't stand people who are mourning over their sin because, you know what? It doesn't want to think about the implications of sin at all. Unsaved people are proud. That's the main reason why they haven't come to Christ. They don't value meekness. And they can't stand those who know they are undeserving and they seek salvation. That can only be received as a gift. Uh, you've probably heard this if you shared your faith at all. That's just a crutch. What are they saying? You're weak. You need a crutch. I don't need a crutch in my life. Look at me. I, I, I'm at the top of my game. I'm wealthy. I have a good family. I'm good to my... And they go through their list of things. And they think somehow that's earning them favor with God. Unbelievers know very little of mercy. They know nothing of purity. The kind of purity we're talking here. They've never learned how to make peace with God that brings peace among men. And so, you could look at this list and say, yeah, right, that's just pie-in-the-sky religion. That, that never is going to happen. Well, I guarantee you, if you start to live out these things, if you ask Christ to enable you through the Holy Spirit 
to make you a humble person, to mourn over your sin, to be merciful and so forth. He will do it. And as He does it, and you start to live out this thing, what's going to happen? You are going to be persecuted. You will go through suffering. That's not something I made up. It's right there in the text. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Well, who is He talking about? He's talking about those who live out these Beatitudes for righteousness' sake. It's interesting, when you look at verses 10 and 11, and we talked about this before, some people think that these are two different Beatitudes. Because all the other Beatitudes start off blessed, so verse 10 starts off blessed, so I guess verse 11 is another Beatitude. No, it's not. It's one and the same with verse 10. 10 and 11 go together. And the reason that is, is because if you look at it, in verse 10 he starts off, blessed are those, same way. And then Jesus personalizes it in verse 11, and he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. He's probably speaking directly to his disciples, looking them eye to eye. Jesus is personalizing his thoughts. Another reason that they appear to be one beatitude is that persecution is spoken of in both verses. Both 10 and 11 speak of being persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And then in verse 11 it goes into more detail. Blessed are those who revile and persecute you. So it's not a separate beatitude. It's the same, one and the same, verses 10 and 11. And then the other reason, if you stop and think about it, there's only one promise regarding those who are persecuted. What is it in verse 10? Theirs is the what? The kingdom of heaven. All the other... Beatitudes have their own promise. This one does too. It just runs over into two verses. So the reason both verses 10 and 11 begin with the word blessed, I believe, is that God is basically saying, you know what? If you're persecuted for my name's sake, if you're persecuted for the name of Christ, you're going to be doubly blessed. And you know what? You look throughout history. Where do churches thrive? Where does the church of Christ thrive? Do they thrive in America? No. Why? Because we don't deal with a lot of persecution here. You go over to a country like China and you have churches underground in and, and, and different places. Uh, Al Swanson was uh, reading us an article on uh, our care group on Wednesday night about the church in, I think it was Iraq or Iran or one of those. And, and there's, a, there's a segment of Christians there and they're all of a sudden becoming persecuted. I guarantee you that church is going to thrive. That's what happened in the New Testament. I mean, you know, once the church began... To become persecuted, it thrived. It grew. That's what happens. We, we grow lazy here in the, in the armchairs of grace in America. And, you know, there's going to come a day. I believe this wholeheartedly. It's, it's in the works now. There's going to come a day when they're going to they're try to put a muzzle on people who stand up and teach the Word of God on a daily basis. On a weekly basis. They're going to say, hey, wait a minute. You can't say that. And people in ministry are going to have to make decisions. Well, okay, what do we do here? Do we obey God or do we obey man? If we obey God, man might get mad. If man gets mad, they may persecute us. What's that mean? Could mean a lot of different things. Could mean fines. Could mean imprisonment. Who knows? Who will be persecuted? It says there, those who live godly lives. Those who live out the Beatitudes. It doesn't really identify who they are by name. It just says, blessed are those who are persecuted. So it's summing up. If you're living this way, if you're mournful, if you're merciful, if you're hungering after righteousness, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get persecution. Those who live out the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 9... 
the natural flow here is that they will be persecuted. The more a person lives for Christ, the more likely the world will react negatively to that lifestyle. Whatever degree a person fulfills the first seven Beatitudes here, he's likely to experience the eighth. It's a guarantee. In 2 Timothy 3.11, Paul kind of speaks of the different persecutions and the different afflictions that he was undergoing and he endured in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, different churches, different towns he was in. And Paul lived a, a godly life. And as a result, what happened? He suffered. In verse 12 of that same text, 2 Timothy 3, he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a promise. That's a promise. That's a guarantee that anyone who lives in a Christ-like manner will suffer. Galatians 4.29 says, As in the time of Isaac, he that was born after flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. Even so it is now. See, nothing's changed, beloved. Nothing's changed at all. Those who are born of the Spirit will be persecuted by those who are born of the flesh. person one time kind of a, worked in a rough job and uh, became a Christian and he was a little intimidated to go back to work kind of a construction job you know every other word was this that cussing and bad language and all sorts of things and he came home first day after becoming a Christian and his wife said how'd it go it's actually it went pretty good I don't think they know I'm a Christian yet See, that's the way we live sometimes. We, we live kind of behind this cloak, you know, and everything's fine as long as we don't speak out about our faith. Everybody else can speak out about their faith. They can even teach their faith in schools and all sorts of things. But when a Christian does it, whoa, look out. See, you'll get along just fine in the world we live in if people don't know you're a Christian. If people don't know you're a Christian. But as you begin to manifest what Jesus is telling us to manifest here, and this is not optional. This is not something that, that you know, well, if you're really spiritual, then you do. No, this is basic 101 Christianity. This is something that will emulate the basic Christian. You will be like Christ. And as you begin to be like Christ, and you begin to participate in His sufferings, the Bible says, you will find that all flesh will always persecute those who are born of the Spirit. Think about it. Just think about it spiritually. If you live in direct opposition to Satan's rule and his system and his reign, that's what he is. He's called the prince, the power of the air here on earth. He's kind of running things here for right now under God's sovereign hand. But even so, it's his world. It's his playground. And if you live in direct opposition to what he's trying to do, what's going to happen? You think he's just going to go, oh, well, it doesn't bother me. No. He's going to cause people to be antagonistic against you. He's going to try to influence you. He's going to try to intimidate you. I'll even say this. If you're not experiencing some form of persecution, if you're not experiencing some form of persecution, it's one of two reasons. Either it's because people don't know that you're a Christian, or maybe the way you're living isn't different enough, it's not even noticeable to them. Because you're not really living up to what Christ has called us to live up to. That's strong, 
Strong word. That's, that's, that's strong medicine, but that's the truth. That's what the Word of God says. The Word of God says a Christ-like life will produce the same reaction Christ received during His earthly ministry. What was it? Did everybody just clap their hands whenever Jesus came in? Oh, great, glad to see you. Tell us some more stuff how, you know, how our religions are wrong and all this and you're the only way. No. They didn't want to hear it. No one has ever been more loving. No one has ever been a greater peacemaker than Christ. And you know what? Some of those people responded to His love. And they entered into a relationship of peace with Christ. But the most loving, gracious, kind, and peaceful person who ever lived, what was the result? He created antagonism wherever he went. He disrupted society because he confronted unrighteousness. He was willing to stand up to people and say, this is not right. Just the other day, there's some kids out here eating some pizza on the steps, and we've had a problem with trash and smoking pot and all sorts of things. So I went down, I'm always nice to us. Hey, you know, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're just eating pizza. And, you know, I said, okay, well, you know, just make sure you clean up, you know, and uh, you, know, you can't really hang out here and whatever, you know, but I mean, if you're going to keep the place clean, that's okay. But, you know, I don't want any drugs. And, you know, like, we're, we're just blank and eating. I said, excuse me? What did you say? So you don't talk to me that way. Oh, well, I just said we're just, you know, he just repeated it. This bold face. It's like he didn't even know what he was saying. And I had a little talk with him about that. But, you know, we need to confront that kind of behavior. So many times we just want to turn the other way. We don't want to cause a problem. You know, we just let everything go. See, if you don't have persecution in your life, it's because there may not be any righteousness in your life. And if you don't have any righteousness in your life, you may have to question your own salvation. Am I really saved? Am I seeing God work in my life in a way that I know that I'm saved? Or am I just holding on to some decision, some aisle I walked, some hand I raised years ago? Is God continuing to work in my life day by day? But like Christ, the righteous have suffered throughout history for their godliness. It started, Abel was murdered by his ungodly brother. Couldn't tolerate Abel's righteousness. Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of the Egyptian society. See, righteousness carries the, this price of persecution. One of the most wonderful guarantees of salvation. If you want to know, people come up all the time, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Good question is, have you ever been persecuted for your faith? Well, no. Well, that may be a good indicator. Either you're not living the Christian life or you're not a Christian. Because there's a promise in the Word of God that says very clearly that if you're a Christian, you're going to undergo some form of persecution. Philippians 1, 28-29, Paul writes, In nothing be terrified by your adversaries, listen, which is to them an evident token of perdition. In other words, when they're persecuting you, they're just kind of living out who they are. They're just living, living the, the unrighteous life they're doing. And then he says, but to you, it's of salvation. When you're persecuted, it's an encouragement that you're saved. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Very clear. When persecutors come against you and manifest a hatred for the gospel, 
and for Christ, it really proves that they're on their fast track to hell. It just reveals their heart. And for us, when we're persecuted, it reveals to us that it assures us of our salvation, that our salvation is genuine. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, No man should be moved by afflictions, for you yourselves know that you are appointed to these things. You are appointed to them. For verily, when we were with you, he says, We told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. God intends for all believers to experience some form of persecution. Just the way it is. What's the importance of expecting persecution? Why should we expect it? Um, you know, if you aren't in conflict with the world, then there's probably something wrong. If you're comfortable here in this world system that we live in, we got problems. Spiritually, you got problems. There's something wrong. We're not called to feel at home here. The Bible says that we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're just passing through this place. If we're starting to settle down and, well, this, this is feeling pretty good. And Jesus were to come back today and say, hey, I'm calling you home. Oh, wait a minute. No, I got, I got this other deal to do. I got this other house to build. I got this other, you know, wait a minute. We're, we're on the wrong foundation. Our heart's in the wrong place. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what time in, in history you live. The Spirit-inspired writers of the, the Scripture were aware that some of their readers would live in societies and even live under governments that would tolerate Christianity, just like ours tolerates Christianity. But regardless of how tolerant people are in different areas or different parts of history, anything like that, you can never eliminate the cross. You eliminate the cross, you eliminate Christianity. When you live out the principles of Christ's kingdom, which are told to us here in the Beatitudes, What's going to happen? You're going to cause the same reaction Christ did. Those who live out the righteousness of Christ in this world are just an affront to Satan. He doesn't like it. And that's true even in the country that professes to be Christian. Our country. If you don't believe me, go into any public school and say, hey, I'd like to get some kids together and read the Bible. I'd like to... Oh, we can't do that. Some of you are in jobs. And if you even try to implement your faith, you better be careful. That's just the way it is. Something that frustrates me all the time as a chaplain, you go out and it's like, you know what? Your hands are tied a lot of times. You know what? Because you know, I thank God. I mean, it sounds weird, but I thank God that the people I go to minister to as a chaplain are Christians sometimes. And I can actually pray with them and I can actually minister to them versus some other religion that, you know, you just got to kind of be, hopefully you know, politically correct around them. And it's unfortunate, but you know what? You want to help people, I can't help them. My hands are tied. Basically, I can say, hey, you know, you got a priest, I'll call you a priest. I'm not Catholic, I don't do last rites or whatever, all this stuff. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, a lot of times they'll just say, well, can you just pray? Sure, I'll pray. <laughs> I'm not going to pray for whoever's deceased here because and you get the chair that way sometimes. But sometimes their, their religion is just even out of Christianity. And so it's like, oh, you know what, you can hook them up with, with somebody that deals with that. But you're limited. You can't help them. Because they're outside of that. And we have to remember that this world is, is different from the way we live. We're not called to be like this world. 
Um, there's a lot of Christians today and you know, society and in the higher societies especially and, and you know, they're they're popular, they're in movies, or all this stuff. And you know it's it's sad, but Christianity, you know, they hear a movie star accepts Christ or whatever, and boy, they're they're on TV and they're all this stuff. And it's sad because a lot of times their faith probably isn't even genuine. You know, we're we're yearning so much for a Christian society that anybody who just would be willing to say, well, yeah, I, I read the Bible, or I do this, or I do that, and they're in a leadership position, immediately we just, oh, they must be a Christian. I mean, I've even heard people, you know, talk about secular music, and, well, you know, I think maybe what he's saying is this, because maybe, maybe this guy's a Christian, and maybe, I don't know. But you would think that if you were a believer in Jesus Christ and you were called to preach the truth of God and you were on American Idol and you had the opportunity before millions of people to share the love of Christ and the forgiveness that is available, would they be able to shut you up? I don't think so. See, we, we, we've lowered our standard. And it happens all the time. God's standards haven't changed. Ours have. We think that the world is more tolerant. Therefore, we have to be more tolerant. Therefore, the church has to be more tolerant. Or we won't be liked. Because everybody wants to be popular. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be famous. Accepted. See, but it, the, word, the Word of God says, if you live the way I'm telling you to live, the way God wants you to live, the world will resent you. Now, am I saying that all Christians are going to be burned at the stake? No, I'm not. I think when Jesus said, blessed are they who are persecuted, He didn't mean that we ought to be experiencing intense suffering all the time. That's contrary to, to living a joyful Christian life. He meant that the world will inevitably persecute those who truly follow Him. It may seem that the world is different because Christians are no longer burned at the stake. So they're a little more tolerant. Which is worse, being burned at the stake or never getting a promotion at work because people resent your Christianity? How about when you're ostracized because you live for Jesus Christ? I mean, persecution can come even from your neighbors who stop talking to you because you confront their sinfulness See, we live in a society where well, that's not my business. <laughs> well, last time I checked, the Bible is full of indications that people's souls are our business. We're supposed to be soul winners. We're out there supposed to be in the world sharing the love of Christ. And one of two things is going to happen when you do that, when you share the gospel with people, either they're going to be offended or they're going to accept what it says and become a Christian. The unfortunate thing is the church has been tamed into this idea that, well, we don't want to do that. We just want to get to know them a little better and then eventually, you know, as a youth pastor, and I remember kids coming in and, you know, missionary dating kind of thing. You know, I don't know if they're Christian or not, but, you know, they're kind of open to it. And, they, you know, it's no different for adults. You have no business playing in that playground. None at all. If a person is outside of Christ and you're in Christ, you have nothing in common. Nothing. And if you don't play there, you're in for a world of hurt. I guarantee you that. 
But you know what? There's really a dishonor that comes across when we avoid persecution. See, there's a way to escape persecution. Maybe you're here this morning and say, well, I don't want to be persecuted. How can I get out of this? All you have to do is approve of the world's standards, their morals, their ethics. If you live like the world tells you to live, and you don't tell sinners that they're on their way to hell and the only way out is through Jesus Christ, if you don't preach the gospel of Christ, and that every other religious system is wrong except Christianity, boy, that's strong medicine. People don't want to hear that. Sounds like you're narrow-minded. The message is narrow-minded. It says there's one way to salvation. It's through Christ. I didn't make it up. You just live your way that way. Instead of separating yourself from the world, you just go along with its jokes and its laughs and entertainment and smile when they mock God and, and, and let people take the Lord's name in vain and just kind of back off and, you know, never take a stand for Christ at all. Well, then you're not going to be persecuted. You're not going to be persecuted. You're going to live nice. But if that's true, I think you need to examine yourself if you are in the faith. I really do. That's what the Bible says. In Luke 9.26, Jesus said this, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. I've been there. I've had opportunities to share Christ with somebody. And because I was ashamed that maybe you know I was being too forceful or maybe whatever, you know, just being shy, then would do it. That's wrong. The last thing any of us should want is for Christ to be ashamed of us as Christians. Jesus said in Luke 6.26, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. Woe unto you. He didn't say, hey, it's a good thing to be in the world and be liked by everybody as a Christian. He didn't say that. He said, you better be careful. You better take to account when everybody in the world is saying, oh, you're a good guy. Yeah, we like having you come out to our parties. You know, we know you do your thing, church thing on Sunday, but that's okay. You're the life of the party. Better be careful. Those claiming to be Christians who are popular with all the world has to offer, has, have they either master Christianity or they're really not even Christians at all? Which is a scary thing in my mind. You know, when the Lord taught the Beatitudes, He was already hated. Even before He opened His mouth in Matthew 5.1. Or 5.3. He was already hated. In Mark 3.6 it says, The Pharisees went forth and straight forward... They took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. The religious leaders began to plot the destruction of Christ right after he began his ministry. In Luke 6, 7, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. That all happened before the Beatitudes even started. Matter of fact, Christ went ahead and he healed someone in verse 11 of... Uh, that and it says the scribes and the Pharisees, it says that they were filled with fury and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Lord didn't even have time to articulate the principles of his kingdom and they were already against him. See, Jesus' message to the Pharisees 
the disciples and the others in the crowd that were gathered around him there on that hill as he spoke about the Beatitudes. You know what his message was? His message was very simple. That there's a price to pay for living in my kingdom. That's what Jesus was telling people. This isn't a free lunch. This isn't, you know, there's a price to pay here. Those who follow me, Jesus was saying, aren't going to have thrones and crowns and fame and prestige and acceptance by everybody and be exalted in this world. You know what's going to happen to them? They're going to suffer. They're going to be persecuted. He was honest right from the start. We need more preaching like that. We need more evangelism like that. Rather than try to go out and make the gospel this candy-coated message that, you know, God loves everybody and He wants to forgive all your sins. Don't you want that? I mean, it doesn't take a, that's That's a silly question. Sure, why not? There's no word of repentance. There's no word of, of living the principles of, of God's Word. You have to be willing to pay a price. It ensures that no one will try to enter the kingdom on the wrong basis. See, what Jesus was doing, he's separating the wheat from the chaff here. We need to tell people, when you become a Christian, you know what? You will have to live contrary to what you're used to living in this world right now. And as a result of that, there's going to be a price to pay. People are going to persecute you. People are not going to like you. You may even risk losing your employment as a result if you live up to Christ's expectations that we find in His Word. Back then, suppose you were a stonemason employed to build a pagan temple. What are you going to do after you come to Christ and He's the only way? After hearing what Jesus said, you might have to say to yourself, you know what? I can't continue to do this. I don't have any other way to make a living. Well... If you were a tailor, maybe employed to make the robes for the priests of the false gods back in his day, maybe you would have to stop making those robes. Maybe you couldn't do that with a clear conscience anymore, knowing that Christ is the only way, and you're enabling the enemy to propagate a false religious system. Maybe if you worked for a ruthless and dishonest boss and you ex who expected you to act similarly, you would have to step away and say, you know what, I can't work for you anymore. Christ has changed my heart, I'm sorry. See, when a person became a Christian, it could result in them leaving the only trade they knew. Their whole lifestyle could be affected. You know, there's people today in our society whose jobs have been affected, whose lives have been affected when they decided to become kingdom citizens, when they decided to follow Christ, and they needed that extra boost of faith to make sure that God is going to supply for their needs. There's actually probably several here, but I'm going to ask one to come and share right now a brief testimony. Ken, come on up and, and share basically your experience after becoming a Christian. What exactly happened with you? Jerry, do you got the mic? Oh, here it is. Oh, as many of you may have heard my story before, I'll just remind you that what Steve said is there is a cost about becoming a believer. And I didn't realize that until uh, some months after I accepted Christ. But the one good thing that Steve also said is the church grows through persecution. But I also want to remind you that the church is made up of people. And individuals, when they're persecuted, grow or they run. And in my case... A couple years, or actually it was a couple months after uh, I came to know the Lord, uh, 
Uh, as many of you know, some of you don't, I worked for a beer distributorship here in Redwood City. I was in management. I had a great job. I was with them for 13 years. I had four weeks vacation, a salary paid job, medical and dental benefits. And then God came along in my life. And it wasn't very long afterwards where some of the things that I used to participate in, whether it be jokes or other things, uh, weren't appealing to me any longer. And it wasn't because somebody at church said, you shouldn't be doing this anymore. It's because God removed the desire from my heart to participate. And I was at a crossroads. Roads. There was a cost to be paid. Whether I was going to fully embrace my relationship with God or whether I was going to run and say, you know what, I, this is too hard for me. Well, praise God, there's a lot of people praying for me. And I withstood the persecution. And it wasn't pretty, but it was real. And as God continued to grow me through that persecution, I realized that this is a way of life that God has called me to. And in about a year and a half, God called me out of that particular line of work. He called me into something that had no benefits. The pay was a lot less than where I was. There was no vacation, and there wasn't vacation for many years after that. But as I left, people began to notice that what I believed was real. It opened some doors, but closed many doors. But on all of it, God was faithful, and my faith began in that place to grow. Was it the last time I was ever persecuted for my faith? Absolutely not. And as Steve has said so eloquently, if you're not being persecuted for your faith, question of what your life is. Because a lot of times you may quote verse and chapter, but the way you live your life has no bearing on what you're talking about. Sometimes you have to go out and live your life the way God wants you to. And that reveals exactly where your heart is. I wrote this little thing down and it came to my understanding as Steve was saying that we can't have the cross without Christ. We can't have Christ without the cross. And we certainly can't have Christianity without the cross of Christ. So my encouragement to you this morning is wherever you are, whether you're being persecuted greatly or not, understand that God is using you wherever you are. In any environment that you are situated in, God will use you. He may want you to be bold, but He also may want you not to be so bold. That's something that God has to impress upon your heart. But through it all, would I change anything? Absolutely not. That was just the first time I was persecuted. And as my 20 years of knowing the Lord, there have been many more. And through each one of them, God has increased my faith and grown me in areas I would have never grown before without that persecution. So be of good cheer. He says, count it all joy that if you are persecuted for my sake, count it all joy. Thanks. You know, that's a very real testimony, and that's something that I'm sure that we can go around the room and, and all of you could share uh, aspects of that. Not only in your employment, maybe with your relationships. Maybe after you became a Christian, certain things didn't, didn't go the way you thought they would go. Uh, 
Uh, you know, a lot of times when someone acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they have decisions to make. It doesn't end with that decision. You know, there's decisions to make. Do I go along with the boys and do what the boys are doing? Same old, same old. Do I engage in certain activities with my friends still? See, back then in Jesus' day, in the ancient world, most feasts were held in the temples of these pagan gods. And that's where all the music and the dancing and the entertainment was. And there was a crowd that, that just flocked to that. And sacrifices would be made to various gods and people would eat what was left over. And eventually it got to the point where the sacrifices, they didn't even bother making them. They just kind of passed them through the flame and, and they passed the meat around and ate it. And it was just a giant party, orgy kind of a thing going on. And Gentiles who became Christians had to decide, you know what? Am I going to go along with this? Or am I going to be a little different? Am I going to do what Christ wants me to do? And a lot of the Jews who became Christians risked being thrown out of the synagogue, being disowned by their families. See, if you're, if you're going to live the kingdom life that Jesus is telling us to live in the Beatitudes, you need to be prepared to be lonely in some crowds. You really do. That's why we as Christians, as the church, we need each other so badly. We should be the ones who are thriving to be around each other. And so many times in churches today, it's just the opposite. I mean, I've actually experienced firsthand and heard people say who are Christians. They're Christians. They claim to know Christ. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I'd rather be around my unbelieving friends than be around the people in the church. I think the reason is because they're showing up on Sunday and they're putting on an act that they call Christianity. And then when they're out there in the world, boy, they can let the act go and they can just be themselves. Be one of the boys. Be one of the gals. Do what comes naturally. Then they come back Sunday. Well, they've got to put that face and that act mask back on again. So when you tell people, hey, you know, you become part of a church or you, know, you need to come together when the body's together. Well, I do Sundays. Don't do anything else. Why? Only they can answer that. When a person becomes a Christian, all kinds of problems can occur. Disruptions in one's home. To be a Christian in the time of Christ meant that people often had to choose between Him and something they loved very dearly. I'll never forget the testimony we heard when we were down at, at the conference of this Muslim girl who went home and her uncle basically beat her within an inch of her life. And they were asking her, what were you thinking when your uncle was ready to kill you? because you were sharing your newfound faith in Christ. And what she said was, you know what? I realized that my uncle was, was willing to kill for his faith, being a Muslim, and I was willing to die for mine, being a Christian. See, Christians paid a very high price for their faith in those days. Some of them were thrown to the lions, others were burned at the stake. Nero basically smeared pitch on Christians, put them on a cross, and he burned them to light the, the paths in his garden, just for fun. They trumped up all kinds of charges against Christians. They were called cannibals because Jesus said, my flesh is food and my blood is drink. Christians were accused of immorality because they had, quote, love feasts. And the kiss of peace turned into this illicit thing. Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. They were thought to be revolutionaries because they said that God was going to come down and destroy this earth with fire and the Roman Empire was a vast empire so you can see what they were up against 
Once a year, every person in the, under the Roman Empire had to basically burn a pinch of incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. That's what you were required to do if you lived under their realm of influence in the Roman Empire. And then they were given a certificate. If they would just do that, just take a little pinch of incense, burn it, and say, Caesar is Lord. Then they were given a certificate that would say, here, you can worship any god you want the rest of the year. We just require you to do this once a year. And Christians never got that certificate because they refused to burn incense to the emperor. And as a result, all the Christians were criminals because they were engaged in illegal worshiping and they had a price to pay because they were willing to worship Jesus Christ as Lord, not Caesar. Next week, we're going to talk about how they actually suffered. And we're going to get into the text a little bit more about being harassed, about being insulted, about having evil things said about you falsely. But I pray this week, as you think about your faith in the world that we live, is it different? Do people say you stand out? Is there something different about you in your workplace? Are you just one of the boys, one of the gals, around the water cooler laughing with everybody else about whatever untaudry joke is being told? We need to stop and we need to realize this is serious. This is not just playing around with religion. This is a life that we're called to. And we live in a world that needs to see and hear the message of the gospel. And God will enable us to do it through His Spirit. Let's stand together and we'll close in a word of prayer as the worship team comes. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning, Lord. I know in this country we don't really understand what it means to be persecuted. And there's not people outside of this building, at least not that I know of, that are ready to arrest us and tie us to a cross and have us crucified for our faith. But Lord, if we do live for You on a regular basis, if we do live for You according to Your Word, there will be antagonism from the world. There will be a distancing from our buddies and our pals if they're not believers and we're living consistently in their presence. And we're calling unrighteousness unrighteousness. And we're dispensing the truth of God as it's meant to be dispensed to a lost and dying world. Lord, either they're going to accept that message of hope and forgiveness in Christ or they're going to reject it. And if they reject it, it's done so with a vengeance and with a bitterness. Lord, you've left us here to share the message of the gospel through our lives, through our lips. I pray that we take that seriously. And Lord, that we too could understand what it means to be blessed as we are persecuted. Father, if there's anybody here today who has yet to put their faith or trust in you as Lord and Savior, this isn't a popular message. You're probably sitting there saying, yeah, this guy says if I come to Christ, I'll be persecuted. That's what the Word of God says. But on the other side of that coin, there's joy, there's hope, there's forgiveness, there's love like you've never known. And that goes on into eternity. The persecution stops here. In this life. But the blessings of Christ go on into eternity. And I guarantee you, it's, it's definitely worth giving your life to Christ. Allowing Him to forgive your sin. Won't you cry out to Him this morning? Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.